Welcome to the podcast, Speak Your Peace. This is a podcast about Utah's history produced by the Utah Department of Culture and Community Engagement. I'm Brad Westwood, Senior Public Historian. My job is to make the very best, the most interesting, and most accurate history of Utah accessible to the widest audience. If there's one place, one podcast to get your Utah history fix, I hope this is the place. Today's episode is about the history of travel in the 20th century, the American vacation, all the roadside architecture, built environment, everything that surrounds us, roads, byways, towns and cities, all about vacationing. If you subscribe to the podcast, or if this is the first time listening, I hope you'll go back and listen to dozens of other prior episodes. Please also rate and review Speak Your Peace on iTunes, Google, and elsewhere. My guests today are Dr. Susan Rue, Professor of History at Brigham Young University and longtime Dean of Undergraduate Education there. Lisa Michelle Church is my second guest, and she's the former Vice President and General Counsel for Sinclair Companies and a former board member and advisor to the Sundance Institute. And twice, she has been a cabinet member to two Utah governors. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Lisa Michelle. Good morning, Brad. I've wanted to have the two of you on this show for quite some time. More detailed bios for both Susan and Lisa Michelle will be included in the show notes. I will say, however, that we'll be talking about Dr. Rue's 2008 book, Are We There Yet? The Golden Age of the American Family Vacation, and Mrs. Church's yet-to-be-published work on Utah's vintage neon signs, and combined their expertise in American and Utah vacation history, the vintage road architecture and attractions, and the general history of travel in the 20th century. The show notes can direct you to how to buy the books and find out more about our guests and their online-related historical materials. Now, with COVID-19 restrictions cautiously easing, and with many of us receiving one of three amazing COVID-19 vaccines, many Utahns are now making up for past vacations postponed during the last year. With the prior restrictions on air travel and foreign travel, and even with the varied state public health restrictions, many of us cautiously ventured out close to home during the last year, following all of the health guidelines And we discovered or rediscovered the vast and varied, cultural-rich, less-traveled places of our state here of Utah. Places that we just would not have enjoyed and experienced. So today we're going to ask you to think about Utah in a different way. To get out and see the different places that are around us that are really quite remarkable. So with that, let's start with a question for Lisa Michelle. Would you describe one or two of the most memorable historic Utah neon signs, Uh, maybe examples that really stand out to you in your study, that we would want our listeners to seek out and experience? Sure. I love that. It's hard to choose my favorite. There's so (laughs) many good ones. Um, Okay. I would direct your listeners to Sands Motel on the boulevard in St. George. It's one of the 1950s signs that's still there. It's very large and very beautifully lit. It actually cost the motel owners quite a bit to keep it lit, the original neon, but it's fabulous. It's just a swim pool is in neon, and then the huge letter sands, 
and it just glows out at you if you're driving down the boulevard about seven at night is the best time to see it. (laughs) At sundown. (laughs) At sundown. It was very evocative of a road trip in the 1950s. Mm. There's some great neon all over the state, though, uh, and kudos to the people who've preserved it. That really makes me happy to see that they've preserved it because it's expensive to keep intact. Uh, Mrs. Backer's Pastry Shop right here on South Temple uh, by our studio. She keeps that up, and it's bright pink neon. It's fabulous, and it's really uh, ornate. So if you're driving up South Temple at evening, you can see that lit. I'm sure you've been to the Las Vegas uh, Neon Museum. Yes. Isn't that a remarkable place? It All is. the graveyard of signs. No. There's nothing quite like everything lit up as it was originally. Right. And I love that some businesses will, like the bowling alley sign on uh, 21st South and State in Salt Lake City, you know, Ritz Classic. They did redo it in LED, and some people are snobs, and they're like, oh, it has to be the original neon. But I'm just so thankful that they kept the sign. And they're actually Ritz Classic Apartments now. There's no bowling alley, but the bowling pin sign is still there. That's wonderful. Well, and uh, Young Sign Company here in Utah uh, had a lot to do with the signage across the Southwest and here in Utah. And I think they're one of the underwriters of the museum, so... um, You know, just as a quick note, how did you get interested in neon signs? (laughs) Well, it was actually the topic of our discussion today. I was researching roadside motels, and I found that there were still a lot of good motel signs in Utah. And then I started noticing the artistry of the signs, and then it just went from one thing to the next, you know, and Mm -hmm. I started photographing all the signs, and uh, Susan and I have done road trips where we've documented the motels that are still there and the signs, and I just think it deserves a book. I'll say. Well, today, even as faraway travel opportunities are opening up and allowed, we think the past COVID-19 travel restrictions may have changed a good many of us. I know it's changed me, perhaps opened my eyes to all that Utah can offer regarding vacation, recreation, and cultural experiences. As Speak Your Peace is all about Utah's history, I've asked our two guests to offer something of a primer, a one-episode discussion on how to read the historical roadside landscape, both urban and rural, hoping to sensitize all of us interested in Utah's prior 20th century road-related architecture. Now, that's highways, roadside attractions, motels, cafes, signs. There's a lot of things out there. Um, Of the hundreds hundreds of miles of state roads, highways, and in between Utah's towns and cities, all that remains this evidence of the 20th century Great American Vacation. Would you both describe in detail, paint a picture for us, a road trip? family vacation, one of those most memorable things that happened during your childhood. Now, as it turns out, we three are all baby boomers, so we kind of experienced that same vacation. Susan? Yes, I remember pretty clearly a vacation that my family took in the early 1960s. I grew up in Provo, as you did. Yes, And uh, we borrowed a camper from a friend, and my parents had seven children, and we all piled in the camper and drove up to Yellowstone. And I remember walking with my family around the the pools and seeing the geysers. But the the anecdote I remember best is when we were driving through the Tetons, uh, 
And my sisters and I were trying to keep ourselves uh, occupied playing cards in the back of the camper on the table. And we were so engrossed in our, our card game that my dad pulled over to the road, got out, came around, opened the back door and said, would you look at the scenery? <laughs> <laughs> and ever since I've said, uh, you know, scenery is wasted on young children. I don't think young children think much about <laughs> seeing scenery. They're more interested in whatever it is they're doing in their laps. And I think that's as true today as it was then. Today they have devices. Then we had card games. Mm -hmm. But that was a very memorable vacation for me. I just wanted to add that the neon signs that we see as artifacts today were the way people decided where to stay for the night. Uh, they didn't have the internet. Uh, you could Calling ahead was something that happened later in history. And those signs were the way that you knew there was a motel, especially in the dark, or a place to eat. So they were vital. And Young Electric Sign Company, you know, they began with him just driving around the West in his car and pulling out sign designs and they they were a really important form of advertising well i can remember also seeing signs that would have things like you know color tv and it would be in color the, color the tv words. is a very famous sign mm -hmm. uh you know vibrating beds another vibrating sign beds, yeah. <laughs> swimming pool swimming pool heated swimming pool Yes, yes. Yeah. So those were important. That, that informed people as they drove along the highway. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting idea, Susan. You, you know, it really the sign said it all, except uh, maybe in the phone book or an advertisement in something. But generally on the road, that's how you made your, that's how you sorted out where you're going to go. That's right. You just, you just drove the highway until you found a sign and you, and you went in and, and that, that's where you stayed. Yes. Michelle. Well, I, my parents are from St. George, but we lived in California when I was a child. So the road trip we took was from California to St. George constantly. Uh, we probably did that once a month. And I remember those trips, of course, it's before seatbelt. So my sister and brother and I had a crib mattress in the back seat. All three <laughs> of us could sleep on. And my dad always drove at night after work. And we'd go across the great California desert and uh, this is where I developed my love of neon, probably, because we would just peer out the windows, eagerly waiting to see, you know, Baker or Barstow or finally Las Vegas, which was much smaller then. But you could see them by the glow of the neon. And did you and have desert water bags on the front of the car? Absolutely. We had those big canvas water bags on the front of our radiator to keep us cool. And when we see those signs, Dad, please stop. Oh, this one has a pool. Oh, this one has a playground. It was just so fun and so enchanting, and I don't think my parents had the interest in it. They just wanted to get to St. George. Mm -hmm. But for us kids, it was just a huge adventure every time. I loved the open-endedness of it. Well, the driving at night was also part of that pre-air-conditioned world where you were much better and your car was better off if you could get on the road where it was cooler and you weren't going to overheat. Absolutely. Um the the other thing that strikes me is all the different things that were used in cars to air condition, including uh, we had uh, a dry ice uh, styrofoam thing that would hang, uh, that would capture the air and then blow it. And, of course, the one fo closest was incredibly We cool. had that, too. And if you sat right next to it, you got chips of ice in your face. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't quite work for the rest of the car, or at least to, to the far side of it. 
Well, interesting. For well, for me, um, first of all, your comment about uh, playing cards. My wife, uh, Verly Westwood, always uh, was in the back seat, and she would get car sick, and so she would just be incredibly sick. And she tells me a story of how her mother very gently picked her up by the, her head, her forehead, and part of her hair, and lifted her up and said, "said It's it's the Tetons." Early, you've got to look at the Tetons, and she was just so sick. She just... But that kind of travel with family was such a big part of this vacation period. This, what well, you most say, people the did age. travel with with their family. Uh, you you've asked, uh, and it was cheap. Gallon gas was five cents a gallon. Uh, a hotel, a motel was maybe three, maybe five dollars a night. And uh, later on, of course, holiday and had kids stay free. But it was a very inexpensive vacation. Now, in those days, people would take a box along with a loaf of bread, you know, stack of bologna, jar of mayonnaise. And no, people did not stop. There were not places to stop. McDonald's comes quite a bit later, mm-hmm. late 50s, early 60s. And then it's a long time before they've blanketed. Places that we're familiar with, like Maverick, where I stopped this morning, uh, or Seven Eleven, those did not exist. That kind of convenience. It did not was exist. Not uh, there was the some stookies in the South, but so people had to carry their food with them. And I remember very clearly the big Scotch plaid cooler in the back um, that my that my parents owned. And you never went across the desert like Lisa Michelle did without water in the car. Mm-hmm. And today my children still make fun of me when I say, where's the water? We need water in the car. <laughs> well, I still turn off the, all the air conditioning and tell them to open their windows because somehow I have this haunting doubt that we're going to you know, successfully right. get across. Right. But all these conveniences, uh, and, and so much has developed in the American road over the last 50, 60 years. And this book of yours, uh, Are We There Yet?, really goes into some incredible detail. And it's a wonderful read for anyone who's ready to go on the open road. You're finished with COVID or you hope it's done and it's over and you want to actually experience the road. Take a, Buy a copy and just kind of enjoy the whole context of what the road was like over the last 75 years. Now, your book covers from World War II, which is what you see you say is the golden age of travel, World War II till when? Well, I ended 1973 with the Arab oil embargo, and uh, society changes then, and people put a lot more energy, the vacation industry, into getaways, romantic getaways. There's uh, urban travel, uh, I love New York, those kinds of slogans. But prior to that time, in the height of the baby boomer era, it is a family vacation era. And it's not that people didn't travel before that or after, but the family vacation became a middle-class ritual. And it's dad packing the luggage and mom reading the map and mom and dad fighting in the front seat about where are they going and the kids fighting in the back seat and somebody (laughs) throwing up and somebody leaving a shoe at a restroom. That's the family vacation and all is chaos. But people did it. Everybody went on vacation. And it, it was an affordable getaway for the family. Also in those days, people had two weeks paid vacation. We could take a page from that book. We are not getting away and out nearly enough for sustained vacation periods. Well, there was a, you speak very, um, I, I think very forcefully and, and very approachably to this idea of just what was the work life like, where the unions were uh, 
prevalent, and uh, there was a sense that people really did need to get away, and uh, that was part of the middle-class life, is that you... Uh, I was just uh, talking to some friends from uh, Helper, and they were describing how all the mines would shut down for two weeks because they all had opportunities to get out and see uh, just vacation, just relax. Right, and they would. Even factories would take these rolling breaks, and the auto unions negotiated this in the, in the 30s, and so after the war it was available. And then also people, many veterans came home from the war having fought for democracy and wanted to take their children to Washington, D.C. They wanted to take them the to the national parks. Right. So this is part of becoming a citizen is uh, as children. And I, I remember quite clearly going to, to Washington, D.C., and in those days you could really go in and tour the Capitol. And I think those are important for children, for nice. the vacation to be educational. And that seemed to be part of the features of this golden age is that somehow it had to be educational or offer some sort of civic engagement. That was a big part of that. That was a big part of it. I don't know if we have that today, but we we certainly did then. Well, in, in a very in a very sweeping big picture way, what are the major 20th century periods or eras of tourism. Let's sort of frame up just what are the big stories over the 20th century. Well, of course, in the West, the first period was rail travel. And those of us who have ancestors who came West, many of them later on in the 19th century came by rail. And uh, that brought a lot of tourism uh, to our parks through Cedar City, there was a bus company that served tourists who ended up coming to the parks by rail. Uh, Bryce, and they, they, they do the circle tour the of, of the parks. parks. The, the Mighty Five. People came to the Mighty Five then by rail. But very quickly after World War II, and even starting before, people it was the automobile age. And uh, people began coming by car. And uh, in 1956, the Interstate Highway Act was signed where the federal government supported highways. And without neglecting early highways in Utah, which Lisa Michelle knows quite a bit about those, but basically by the time the interstate gets through Utah in the late 50s and 1960s, then the whole landscape is reimagined. And I would say we're still in the automobile age mm-hmm. of, of vacations. Nothing has, I mean, in in the 60s, people began to fly and began to fly to Europe when flights were cheap. And I think we know today that, you know, flights, flights are full again, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, people so, are on the road one way or another by right. air or, or, or in, in cars. I have a lot of friends who just went to Hawaii. They got tickets when it was cheap uh, with with their kids, so it's more affordable for a family today to take other ways of vacationing than the car. And it, but in the golden age, and uh, as you say, it still continues today. But uh, people were on the road to the parks. Uh, in your book, you describe uh, uh, spending time out in nature, uh, going to Disneyland. I mean, it's wonderful how you break down all the different ways people can or how they vacationed. Yes, a lot of people. Uh, you know, I mean, all of us go to Disneyland. If you don't go to Disneyland, you're, you're, you know, a cultural curiosity these days. Everybody goes to Disneyland and it opened in 1955. It was a great place for families to go. It's gotten a lot more expensive, 
uh, and Disneyland began as an imitation theme park, imitating the Wild West. And everybody watched westerns in those days, so people wanted a taste of of the West. If you talk about places like the Midwest or even here in Utah, people have cabins, and you go to where it's cool because, of course, there wasn't air conditioning. So you would go to a higher elevation or to a forested area to be cool. And I write in my book a lot about the uh, cabins in the upper Midwest. And people would go to the same cabin, the same lake, the same fishing every summer. It was very reassuring kind for of children. A solid little summer tradition. Well, in here in Utah, we have the whole canyon experiences where people would go up in the canyon. Uh, I noted even in Provo Canyon, you had uh, Wildwood, which was a little uh, bit more upscale. But then you had Vivian Park, which had small, tiny little uh, fishing cabins. And it was like the little working man's place to go. Yes. Unfortunately, you see now where people buy five or six of these smaller little uh, lots and build larger homes. Right. But the it's a, it originated as a, a place where people of working class could go up and right. get away from the heat. Right. Big part of Utah. Well, during this period between World War II and the 1970s, um, personal travel was very different for uh, African Americans, uh, Jews, uh, beyond the usual uh, white uh, uh, large majority. Tell us about that experience in America. Well, I want to make sure when I say the golden age of the American family vacation, it doesn't include everyone. And um, Jews, of course, constructed their own vacation community in the Catskills, the Jews in New York, and dad would stay in New York City and work all week, but the family would be up in the Catskills. Of course, we have some famous uh, cultural references to that in Dirty Dancing and other movies. Mm -hmm. But the reason they were there is because they were not uh, welcomed in many places, uh, and they were they were excluded. It was also a great place, and uh, if you've ever watched the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, it was mm -hmm. a great place to try to find a husband. <laughs> <laughs> well, and sadly, and and for uh, your daughter, to, I mean, for your daughter yes. and son. <laughs> to uh, to their credit, are these minority populations found ways within the American economic system to develop their own places, sadly, because they weren't allowed otherwise. Right. Well, African-Americans uh, vacationed in segregated places. They had resorts like Idlewild uh, in in Michigan, uh, beach vacations, many of these resorts. Of course, uh, if you've seen the movie Green Book, you're aware of the segregation. Uh, but they, it's not like they stopped traveling. It's not like people who were black didn't go on vacation. They went on vacation. They carried food with them. Uh, it was better better quality. It was fried chicken, not bologna. Uh, and they had the green book to guide them to places that would accept them. And this is very true of Utah. There were only two hotels in Utah, one of which was the Hotel Roberts in Provo, that would accept black Americans as guests. And that was also true in Salt Lake City when Marian Anderson came here, the famous soprano. Uh, they weren't, they were not be able to be served at a restaurant. Well, they, I know in the Green Book, there were uh, four hotels in 1956 and three of them were on North Temple in one block. Right, right. And so often they would stay at rooming houses. Or uh, family. Or with could. family. Um, but 
of course, this was a searing experience mm. for these parents to be turned away and humiliated in front of their children. Well, that's one of your chapters is, what is it, how not to be humiliated? Yes, a vacation without humiliation. Such a, you know, as we look back now, we have to, we have to stamp our sense of indignation or just, yes. this is a different, we need to have a different world. Well, of course, uh, mobility uh, was was curbed for black Americans and uh, throughout history. It still is, let's be frank about it. But these people forged ahead and they wrote letters to NAACP and they were in many ways uh, the vanguard of the civil rights movement. We read a lot about bus travel and, um, you know, bus integration, but really in cars, people also fought for equal rights and to be treated like with dignity rather mm-hmm. than being sent around the back. Uh, well, I, I I think your chapter addresses that. Although the title is Golden Age, you've been very clear about how different it was for so many other Americans. Um, Lisa Michelle, what are the key companies, the designers across the Intermountain West that did neon signs? And uh, is there a periods or are there some ways of describing signage in yeah. period wise? Yeah, so you already mentioned Young Electric Sign Company. It's now known as Yesco. Uh, but they were a vanguard, just like Susan said. They were really the modern uh, neon explosion comes back to them in the West. They were really driving around the whole state and really the West saying, you know, would you like a neon sign? Here's some designs that we have. And the little mom and pops would say, sure, how much will that cost? And they'd sometimes have very small signs and sometimes they could afford more elaborate signs. Uh, But as you said, they were very prominent in the Las Vegas Strip and the development of neon in, in Nevada. Unfortunately, they endowed the Neon Museum there. I wish Utah would do something similar. Mm. My dream would be in Utah that we would have uh, more sign installations in our city parks because I think if we would take the signs that are no longer used and put them in the parks uh, and just have a minimal maintenance, I think it would really add to the parkscape in there. Sugar House Park. Sugar House has done a great job of preserving their neon and um, it would be great if some of those signs need to find a home, they could find it in the park. And there's actually really great neon signs in every community still that could be harvested if they're no longer in use. Well, in some cases, I'll drive through some of Utah's um, rural communities, and I have this moment where I think, oh, please don't modernize. I mean, there's this yeah. moment where yeah. it, it almost seems like every time I find something like this, it, it's the next time I come, it's not there anymore. It, it's almost like... Uh, I also have this belief that uh, it takes about 30 or 40 years for people to appreciate it. If you keep it long enough, you can retain Mm -hmm. it. But somewhere between that 30 and 40 years, people suddenly realize how, you know, uh, uh, how it's not in fashion and they need to get rid of it. And it seems like so much is destroyed just at the edge of when we start to reappreciate it. Yeah. I would like to pay tribute to David Brimley at Brimley Neon. He's one that's done a lot of the retrofitting of the neon in Helper. Helper Utah has a great program to save their signs. And David's, I think, a third or even fourth generation neon artist in his family. So Brimley Neon here in Salt Lake has done a lot of the signs originally. And now David, who's our age, is retrofitting them and modernizing them for the people that are willing to save them. So I really think he's a great artist. And then Rainbow Sign 
was a smaller company, but they also did a lot of the neon art in Utah. So not just Yesco, but several other smaller artists that should get tribute. Is there some kind of classification or periods? I mean, what's the earliest signage? So the 20s is when the real neon starts, and that's when it explodes all over the country. And as Susan said, it was really a major advertising boom because that was the only way you knew what the business did uh, unless you had a, you know, a book. And so neon was just all over the country in the 20s and 30s. Then after the war, it took another big jump when we had all the motel explosion. And so you have another big period of neon. But really, starting in the 70s and 80s, you get the plastic signs, you get the vacuums, plastic vacuum signs, and then you start to see neon disappear, which is heartbreaking. Uh, But there's a great community on Instagram uh, that is, if you're interested in seeing signs, uh, five or six of us post signs almost every day that we find around the country. And so they're trying to document every sign before it gets taken down, like you said. What's that website? So it's a whole bunch of them. There's sign geeks, sign mongers, signs of Instagram. Mine is a relentless history. Uh, there's the Utah ones, Neon Lover 801. I would give him a shout out because <laughs> he does a great job. You no, know, we'll put some of those on the show notes. Yeah, there's some really good ones. And I really give them credit because like you said, you'll drive by one day and think, what happened to the sign? Oh no, no one got a photo before it was taken down. And Susan and I are blunt enough to go in and Say, what are you doing with that sign? <laughs> Make <Are> them <laughs> aware of the value of it. Yeah. Well, I went down State Street uh, a few days ago, and I'm really happy to see that the spiking tourist lodge sign mm-hmm. is still up, and Temple City. Temple City. And, and these are in the old 30s. school. And they're still there, even though many of the buildings are shrinking. The signs mm-hmm. are still there, so I want to give them a shout-out, too. <laughs> Absolutely. These owners have really put some money into it. That Temple City one is phenomenal. Well, so for me, what I think is fascinating is hotels and motels uh, have gone through these periods, and early on when the car really started to be a big part of the American culture, you had these little cabins, and then from cabins to motels and motels to other things but there you can almost track each of the periods or types of architecture uh, from those little tiny way places to really posh motels and we're going to talk a little more about that but Susan after World War II uh, you mentioned a number of vacation types the uh, uh, pilgrimages and uh Back to, back to nature. Will you describe in a little more detail just what were those themes? Well, the pilgrimage vacation would be going to see historic sites and, and educational, but I think you could also see it as when you go back to your hometown. You want to show your children where you where you grew up. Um, maybe visit cemeteries as well. Uh, the after World War II, there was a great deal of mobility. A lot of Americans moved. The West uh, was a big draw. And so the pilgrimage vacation would be to go places like uh, Abraham Lincoln's sites, uh, Washington, D.C. Today, I think uh, you could put in there the uh, Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. so, uh, places where big events happened. And then back to nature, uh, going to a cabin, getting out and um Camping was huge. Camping was very, very affordable. People would borrow tents and go to the national parks. And this was back in the day when they thought they were crowded then. <laughs> but you really could take a family and throw a tent in the back and go to Yosemite. 
And, and never, never stay in a hotel or Never motel. stay in a hotel. And Yosemite, you know, we can, we date, we, we can trace the modern environmental movement in many ways to Yosemite and some of those experiences that those people had in the parks. Uh, yeah, well, well, so I know in your book you also describe um, the West. And this is fascinating because you mentioned earlier this idea that Disneyland is sort of an extension of that. In the 1950s, the West was a big theme of interest. Could you talk more about that? Well, people, uh, myself included, grew up watching Westerns on TV, uh, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, all of these. This was, of course, because TV became more popular. And um, one of the early theme parks was Knott's Berry Farm. It started out as a chicken restaurant, uh, a roadside stand. Uh, and then they went and bought the, the Calico, the old ghost town, and brought it in. And Knott's Berry Farm was really the first Southern California theme park, and then followed by Disney's Disneyland. And Walt Disney's idea was to create a theme park that would be clean and safe for children. And he had little children then, and he used the theme park to sell his movies. And you might kind of decry the com commercialism. I, I, for one, love the Pirates of Caribbean ride. But, um, <laughs> of course, back in the day, you wore your coonskin, Davy Crockett coonskin cap, and you went on the raft, and uh, they had Indian dances, they had shootouts, uh, and they created these animatronic characters, little, little creatures in the desert that you could see. So even though the West itself was disappearing, the West is seen in mythic television world. shows and, and movies. He was creating the West there, Disneyland was, uh, so you could still experience it. So it was a f really a fake West, but uh, it still, people felt like they had seen the West. And they could really kind of relive or they could. experience it. And it took time for them to deal with the the issue of, of course, Indian dancers, and they moved to the point where they had natives, real native performers, uh, took some time. Um, but the West was a scene of, of fascination with the military installations on the West after the war. So many more people moved here. So many more people went to Disneyland. Interesting. Well, um, I, I want to talk for a little bit about what were the conditions that created this golden age? Uh, you very carefully go through as 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 a really good historian, lining up all the things that made this period of time where everybody was out in the road. Can you talk a little bit about those? Sure. Well, after the after the war, of course, uh, after the the first year, of course, there's still some restrictions on production of cars, but it's really ramped up by Detroit and car manufacture. And in those days, I mean, my grandfather bought a car every year. Uh, and the car was pushed by manufacturers. It was a great consumer age. People were moving to the suburbs and used to driving. Uh, the birth rate shot up. There were many more children. And how, how could you get them places except to throw them, as Lisa Michelle says, in the back on a mattress? Seatbelts were not required till 1978. And then I think there's something that we haven't put our finger on yet, and that is this idea of American freedom a feeling like we own the country and we want to get out on the road. We want to put the I'm windows down. I'm an American down. citizen and this is my land. This is my land. And so it's a patriotic era. 
as well as a family-centered era. And wages were good. Uh, mom, mom was home. She wasn't, she wasn't working. You just got dad's two weeks off. Uh, even in even in very in working class families, that was that was true. So, you know, you you mention in your book about the roadside uh, highway places, the the little hotels, the small places where you can stop, uh, open uh, open air cafes, and lots of different places. But by 1956, talk about how the transition of the interstate changes travel. Well, let me. Let me back up a little bit on that um, to talk about tourist courts. I, I just wanted Mich- Lisa Michelle to talk a little bit about the tourist courts in St. George, and then I'll then I'll then I'll move to that. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting story of roads as much as anything. Uh, and there was in Utah, there was a huge push to improve the roads so that when the age of automobiles came about, we could actually drive on the roads. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Arrowhead Highway went from Los Angeles to Salt Lake City. Uh, starting in 1916, and it was nothing more than two dirt ruts. Uh, And one of the things I would encourage your listeners to do is, as you drive I-15 now south to St. George, try and see where the Arrowhead Highway used to go, because you can still see a lot of the vestiges of that old highway off to the side of I-15. And it went through every single town, so that gives you a clue. So when you're going through, for example, the Fillmore Valley, get off at Fillmore and drive over to Meadow and to Kenosha and see the old highway. It's still in place, and it's really fascinating. Well, we take roads for granted now, but uh, it was a rough go. I mean, the idea, when you went on vacation, you typically went on a train. Uh, roads were not um, not well built. Uh, it took boosterism, lots of communities and people to yeah. say, Privately we funded have, roads. We have cars now. We need to have better roads. And that Arrowhead was part of that experience. Yep. And, and, of course, commercialism, people had to... Uh, the roads had to go through towns. Right, because, as Susan said, they had to stay somewhere. These cars didn't go all night and all day. And so they stayed in these little, at first they were auto camps, and they were just wide spots in the road where you could pull your car over and maybe get a bucket of water and a place to wash up. And then they started building little teeny cabins that had a bed in them, just a box spring. And then... uh, people started to say, well, let's put a roof over all those cabins and maybe put a service station near them. And now you're getting kind of an auto court and the cars would be able to pull in. And there's still a couple of these, even in Salt Lake. I challenge your listeners to drive down State Street. You'll see places that have garages next to the little motel room where you could pull your car into the garage and have your little motel room next to it. You know, when you take out an old highway map with 89 and 91 and uh, some of these long-term highways, you will see these residual properties uh, of the old gas stations, the old uh, courts, and so on. Uh, we're so far removed from that. Now, we don't know that these Well, 89 towns- and 91 were the spine through Utah, and then, of course, uh, 40, which became close to 80 going across, yeah. and people built there. The first, the word motel is was coined in 1926 in San Luis Obispo, California, but we really don't see it used until the 40s. And then it starts to apply to some of these tourist courts that Lisa Michelle has described, and they make them more modern. They put up a portico. Sometimes they take the service station out, and then they put this common roof over all the cabins or all the rooms, and then they start designing them from scratch. 
And we call them mom and pops because they were built without a lot of outside capital, a lot of family capital, uh, their cinder blocks. They, they weren't expensive to build. And the family ran the place. Uh, so they were family-owned, family-run motels. And they were all over, uh, Bernard DeVoto said they sprouted up like mushrooms, but they're all <laughs> over 89, 91, and, and, and 40 uh, throughout the West. And then Salt Lake City uh, had a lovely concentration right of motels. Yeah, I've written about that in a, in a book on the 20th century West. So they're, they're disappearing um, and then, and then you, you, you said what happens after motels and that's what we're, what we're working on. Uh, I think it goes a couple of directions. Uh, one direction it goes is the, uh, motor inn or motor hotel and where OC Tanner is today was a huge world motor mm-hmm. lodge. You have to remind me of the exact name. World motor hotel. World motor hotel. And they begin to have meeting rooms for businesses and conventions and we really wish that place was still here. Yeah. <laughs> well, where, where the uh, f- uh, family history library and the church history library was the um, Hotel Utah Motor Lodge. Mm-hmm. It was there. And it had a couple hundred rooms, and it had a place where a salesman could set up and sell their wares. Right. It, it was like, um, okay, you don't want to go to the big hotels downtown. You want to be somewhere off the freeway. You want to park your car right up against your room, but you also wanted to have some of the amenities of hotels. Mm-hmm. So it goes that direction in larger, larger motor ends. And then um, the small mom and pops start to sell out to chains and chains take over travel lodge. But the fascinating thing about that is the franchises, uh, they become franchises and they're still owned by families. They maybe they're not as distinctive. They don't have their names, but it is still families often that that run them. And uh, after the interstate comes through, then towns like Cedar City really have to work to get people off the beaten path to where they are. But once you have the interstate and you have these large clover leaves, then the chains really come in and build right off those exits. And it's just kind of uh, capitalism has a way of eating their own. Uh, you get the big interstate, uh, the small mom and pops don't have a chance to get as many tourists on the road as they once did threading through towns, uh, and they fade away. But you're saying they there's f- some, some still around that people There can are enjoy. some still around, and they don't fade away just because of the competition. They fade away in part because the children of these owners, which I call legacy owners, they don't want to run a motel. All they the go to college. Work. They want advanced degrees. So yeah. it's not just competition. They're, it's also it's internal. It's not off the road because they're no longer on the main road. Mm-hmm. There's a, a really interesting part of the story in Utah particularly I, I've written about, which is Utah towns were cited by Brigham Young for purposes of settlement, but they weren't always self-sustaining places where there was enough water or agricultural land or things that would cause the community to survive independently of religion. So a lot of those towns by the turn of the century were failing, and the second and third generation couldn't stay there. There weren't enough farmlands for all of the kids to inherit. Not enough arable, irrigatable land. Exactly, and not enough natural resources generally. I mean, Mm -hmm. the railroad could never make it to St. George. How was the southern part of the state going to survive without a railroad? So what they did was reinvent around tourism, and Susan has written a lot about this, and they wanted tourists 
in a crazy way because that kept the kids at home. They could build cafes, they could build service stations and motels. And the tourists, as one guy told me from St. George, we couldn't believe it. They would come here and leave their money and go. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, and we didn't have to ship fruit to them or, you know, truck things out of our community. We just sit here and take the money in. And so the, the interesting part of the story to me is that they reinvented their communities around tourism in the golden age that Susan's describing. And um, I always say the Dylan quote, they bargained for salvation and they got a lethal dose <laughs> because the people came, hundreds of thousands of people came to these communities of 3,000 people. And then the chains came and outdid all the mom and pops. And As Susan said, one of the pretty parts of the story that we like is when we go to the Super 8 in Nephi, it's still owned by a family, but it's now the Super 8 instead of, you know, Bennett's Auto Court. So it's really not uh, an industry destroyed. It's just like a phoenix rising from the ashes of the mom and pops of the 50s in Utah. Well, I have this thing about wanting to go to uh, boutique little hotels when I'm in urban areas. And when I'm in rural areas, I want to find those little Canab. places. Yeah, Canab has them. Vernal has and them. And Panguitch has Panguitch. some really good ones now. You can experience something really wonderful and still have a enjoyable, comfortable time and still have something that's kind of historic. Mm-hmm. It's not like one or the other. Right. Lots of Especially fun Especially in Utah. Especially in Utah, a lot of these places remain. And, you know, we've talked a lot away from the Wasatch Front. Uh, I, I mean, every every time I drive into Salt Lake, something is lost and something is, a, a new apartment building is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I hate it that we lost the covered wagon and we lost the scenic inn. Um, but in in rural Utah, many places you can you can still see them. Now, when I, when I was in Helper a couple of weeks ago, uh, I drove, uh, and this is where you have the sign. Sometimes they're only vestige. I drove over to the Balance Rock sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think many of these motels have now become apartments, and in the city today, this is true in Provo as well as Salt Lake City. They're used for housing transients and the homeless. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the disinvestment in public housing by the nation in the 1990s has led us to this point where many of these buildings survive, but they have a different function. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you can see, uh, if you've looked at the Bugsy Siegel uh, motels in Las Vegas, they, they, this is a business built to serve people who can't pay the rent or they have a drug infraction, but they need a place to live. And these former motels have, have been converted into housing. Sort of in the shadows of the larger mega corporate right. hotels. But these, these many, you know, uh, housing, our, our housing authority here and our, our welfare organizations in the state, they, get, they hand out motel vouchers and it keeps these places in business. If this were not true, I don't think we'd still have the buildings. Interesting. So it's that use that preserves It's a different them. use. Well, you tell us some stories about on the road where you've uh, found some really good finds. Any other places you'd like to recommend? Well, I mean, Susan and I did take a road trip a couple of years ago. We went down 91, which means get off Interstate 15. You have to get off at every town and go in and see what's still there. And then we came back up 89, right? Mm -hmm. And we saw, oh, we documented so many that were still there. We were so excited to see how many were still there. Um, 
Let and me just interrupt. We we did this for the State Historical Society. Yes, we oh, did. wonderful. We, we conducted a, a survey an inventory. For them. Yeah. Inventory. Uh, so I would give a shout out to Panguitch. I think because it was never an interstate, it has really preserved the 1950s, 60s golden age uh, well. And so uh, churches, Blue Pine, yes, they're relatives of mine, but they have a beautiful neon sign of a pine tree, and they're fourth generation owned and operated. There's some really great neon in Panguitch that's still there, and those motels have been updated, so they're very comfortable. They're very close to Bryce, and you could really have a great opportunity to just experience what this road trip would have been like. Mm. Wonderful. Others? Well, Lisa Michelle is the authority on southern Utah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every town has one or two, so don't don't despair. Well, and that's what I want our listeners to do is to get on these old highways and experience yeah. these you, you, you know maybe they're a little smaller mm-hmm. but uh, they're clean and nice and they're close to where you want to be right exactly uh, like I said the Sands Motel in St. George the Whitwer family which is fourth generation motel owners from Las Vegas and St. George they are uh, affiliated with the Abbey and chain now but they have the Dixie Palm right there on the boulevard a great neon sign in the original 1940s building and you can stay there very comfortably very safely uh, and I would encourage you even in Logan you know the bomb hotel mm-hmm. it still has the original 1930s office which is a red brick colonial style welcome for mm. travelers uh, you and and Susan have talked about helper I think helper had some great treats down there in price so, you know, just don't open forget Vernal. Don't forget oh, Vernal right. with the uh, fiberglass dinosaurs. Yes. <laughs> the <laughs> pink, pink dinosaurs. Yes. So this was their way of, of marketing themselves. Yeah. Uh, but even if you don't want to stay at these motels, get off the interstate and drive through the towns. In Fillmore, they have a great handmade sign called the Spinning Wheel Motel. Oh, yes. It's welded uh, out of metal. Uh, the Fillmore Motel has this great guy yawning and sleeping on his, they took the neon off of it, but it's still there. Uh, Beaver doesn't have this motel in operation anymore, but it's worth looking at the Sleepy Lagoon Motel sign. <laughs> Don't miss it. it. Yeah, it's at the south end of Beaver, and the lagoon is still there. And the sign, which is gorgeous, is still there. And, and Susan and I have both tried to get the people who own it to consider saving it. They're not going to open the motel anytime soon, so I wish they would save the sign. But At least they save the sign. Well, what I want our listeners to do is to go on their vacation and think about one of these places they mm-hmm. can go and, and uh, uh, you know, help them economically so they keep in business. But I also think there's enough heritage tourism, people are interested in those sort of things, where they'll go stay at a camp, you know, an old uh, cabin place or um one of these places you can drive your car in the garage and you know stay i just wanted to pick up on that uh if if many of these smaller facilities today are owned by immigrants from india from the gujarat area of india the patel family the patels they have other names that decides the patels and they have in many ways saved these motels today uh Maybe half to three-quarter of economy motels in the United States are owned by Asian Americans. There's a very large Asian American Hotel Owners Association. And we have interviewed some of these Asian American owners in Panguitch, in St. George. And uh, 
they have really an, an, an empire of motels. Many mm-hmm. of them came when the Immigration Act changed in 1965, which encouraged immigration from India, specifically people who had technical skills. And uh, they operate many, many of our Utah motels. Wonderful American dream. Very, very nicely. Yeah, they uh, come and, and uh, have a niche in this market. They and have a niche. Do and a they, wonderful job. Now, the question remains, will their children, uh, so we still have the family capital and labor model with them, will their children want to stay in motels? I interviewed uh, uh, a Patel family in uh, Palm Desert, and the son said, no, I'm going to medical school. (laughs) But if you look at Palm Desert, if you look at Boise, it's all around the Intermountain West. But Utah is in the center, many ways, uh, of this. Interesting. New migration. Another, uh, another thing that saved them has been uh, online booking because a lot of the people we've interviewed in these smaller motels, they could never afford the kind of advertising it would take to get that exposure. But once there became online booking and they could just be on the internet, some of them have their entire summers completely booked and they actually intentionally save a couple rooms a night just for the drive-in just for the ones who can Mm -hmm. just check in and see if they can get a room so it might have seemed like a negative thing but it's actually been a really positive thing for the mom and pops well and uh, the mom and pops to me is there's something really quite unique about uh interacting with the owner Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. knowing it's one of their kids or someone who's going to clean up your room for you and um, I, I have to mention the Nell motels. Mm-hmm. Ray Nell founded his motel in the 30s in Cedar City. Those of you who've gone to the Shakespeare Festival will know about the El Rey. Mm. Yes, uh, of It was handed down to his son, Douglas, uh, after Ray Nell died. And Ray Nell was one of the original founders of Best Western. Uh, he was a, a national officer in hotel and motel associations. And when the interstate came, they put up a fight. They knew They knew what the impact would be uh i I, i'm sad to report i'm happy to report it is still there but it is now owned by a chain it's called the the baymont by wyndham and i can't think of a worse name baymont (laughs) (laughs) for cedar city i don't think there's any bay near there anywhere but um so the change means that we've lost some local utah culture yeah uh, the change of the names, uh, the corporatization. I'm sure it's still a very fine motel, uh, absolutely, and a place to stay. But, but it is a little bit sad. It's it's gone. But away. maybe the third generation didn't didn't want to be moteliers. Well, and you in your book you describe just how work intensive it is to have a camp, to have a hotel. To I mean, there's uh, all hands on deck, and it's a 24 hour job. Hour job. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to the podcast, Speak Your Peace, where writers and historians and contributors to Utah's history share their insights and discoveries. Today's guests are BYU historian, Dr. Susan Rue, and attorney and community activist, Lisa Michelle Church. If you want to read more about the show and today's guests, please search online under Speak Your Peace, Utah, and the podcast will come up. In our next segment of Speak Your Peace, we'll talk more about the material culture, the architecture, and the history of the Great American Vacation. After World War II, there was this explosion of consumer culture where people were sensitive and wanted to have the newest and the best and the most comfortable, and motels had a, played a part in that. Could, could you describe just 
historically what happened after World War II? Sure. So one of the things that really got the motels into the public consciousness was they would provide certain amenities that they didn't always have at home. So if you pulled into a motel in the 1940s or 50s, you might see a TV and you didn't have a TV in your home. And so then, you know, there's a sign free TV, which seems funny to us now, but that would be an amenity that you wouldn't have at home and you would maybe go home and say, I want one of those. That was pretty fun. Uh, same with mattresses. Beauty Rest Mattress would provide a lot of mattresses to the motels and advertise with their name. So then you'd say, wow, that was the best night's sleep I ever had. I want to go home and buy a Beauty Rest Mattress. How so, about air conditioning? How did it fit into this story? Yeah, I mean, it, it was really the thing that saved Southern Utah. I don't think anyone would have stayed overnight in St. George before air conditioning if they could help it. But um, air conditioning would come in. They would have steam heat. And they would advertise steam heat and then air conditioning or air-cooled rooms. They weren't always full air conditioners. But, boy, that really caught on. And people went home and said, I want that in my house because I had it in a motel room I stayed in. One way in which you see this is the advent of color TV. You've mentioned we have these color TV signs that you can still see out there. But these were released uh, by RCA and other companies to oh, the so motels. They had special arrangements they didn't, for them. They didn't own them. They were leased, um, and they would come in and, and install them in in the room. Uh, Magic fingers, the vibrating mattresses. I always wondered. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're leased also, and they're that what it was was a contraption that you put between the mattresses. That's how. And that's, that's how what it vibrated, right? And you drop your quarters in the side right. of the bed and. What an odd thing. And then the whole idea people. of uh, cleanliness and sanitation, uh, the strip of paper across the toilet seat so that you knew no one had been there before. Or a little uh, bar of, of, of soap. The covered wrapped in- bar of soap. The tumblers, which were glasses then, they moved from glasses to wrapped glasses in these little glassine bags. And so this helped com- comfort people and made them feel that this was a clean place. Well, t- to me, as a, as a child, I remember just how fun it was to go to these incredibly modern new hotels. And um, uh, why don't we talk about just what we're all part of hotels, say, let's talk about the 1960s. Well, the m- swimming pool, yeah. many pe- many motels put in swimming pools. And this, again, was something you could see from the road. And you, if as a family, your kids have been in the car all day, you wanted a place for them to to move around and get their energy out. It was right on the road. Right on the road. You could see the pool. Of course, later on, uh, the number of lawsuits uh, take the swimming pools out of small motels because there were some dangerous accidents. But uh, the, the swimming pool was one. That was right front and center, as big as the neon sign. Absolutely. So we had the big color, often neon road sign, advertising the most up-to-date amenities. Uh, you mentioned uh, the the color TV. For me, there's this branch of architecture, a googie architecture. The googie architecture. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. Right. Very, very colorful, neon, playful looking. There's a whole bunch of googie motels. It's still in New Jersey being preserved. A lot of it in Southern California. It, it spoke modern. Uh, and some of the Kanab motels have reinvented the Googie yes. architecture, if you want to check them out in Kanab, yeah. with the big uh, circle, wrought iron circle fences and the neon in circles and really bright colors. Turquoise is a big popular Googie architecture color. So right. That's wonderful. It's fun. 
Well, right. now, I remember also that whoever made the beds made them as tight as could be. Those covers were in white, clean sheets, cotton. It seemed to be almost right. like you're telling everyone that these are clean and you're the first so one the in qual- them. The quality of the sheets is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you do not want to get in somebody else's sheets. And <laughs> most of them actually were embroidered with the name of the hotel or motel. And oh. the blankets were woven with the names. With the na- and the them. towels, yes. the big uh, terry yes. cloth towels so, with yeah. it. You, if you... St- after a while, people would steal them just so that they could have the right. name. So laundry was a big part of doing laundry is a big part of owning a motel. Mm-hmm. And of course, many of them had it done off-site. Interesting. Uh, we mentioned the coin-operated vibrating bed, and you say they leased those. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Right. And color TVs, uh, telephones, big deal. Well, telephones especially were important for businessmen who were an important part of this clientele. But it, the advertisement would say in-room telephone. In fact, uh, we have a funny story about the spiking motor lodge uh, wh- where everything went through a switchboard. And so, so, sometimes, the you know, we talked to the owner's son and he would hear things that he <laughs> maybe shouldn't have heard as he ran the motel switchboard. So the f- telephone is a sign of privacy. Yeah, that was some, where you could use the phone and not have to go And you wouldn't have to pay. It was free. Yeah. Well, then eventually phones became uh, another revenue stream for companies where right. they could figure out. And if how you, if you, so there's this company um, trade journal called Hotel Motel or Tourist Court Journal, and uh, av- all of these products are advertised, and you see uh, how it, all the motel owners would subscribe to this and they would write in and you could see these products advertised. So you begin to see the links in this large corporate American hospitality network. It was just a, uh, just grew up with a, with our car culture. Right. So sleek, modern, custom corporate hotel desks, nightstands, bedstands. I mean, there was a distinctive type of furniture. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the desk was very important, especially if you were a businessman. You had to have your telephone you and desk. your desk. And, and then, this, there was also free stationery, of course. Oh, I, that was part of their advertising. Brand promotion. And people would write letters uh, on the letterhead and send it off. And, and, you know, now I have to go up and ask for letterhead and and stationery. And they want to know what the heck I want to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> well, don't forget the motel postcards. That's a whole other conversation. Oh, yes, of course. Susan Hotels. and I have both con- collected those old motel postcards for our whole lives. And there was a postcard company in, in Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to know what, what happened to them. Yeah, it was Stites, wasn't it? Stites. Yeah. I, I was almost ready to say the name. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, but they sold uh, to little mom and pop hotels and right. cafes and roadside uh, attractions mm-hmm. everywhere. What interesting postcards, of course. Uh, as we mentioned, the daily changing of linen and towels and rooms vacuumed and cleaned. What, what was That was a big deal, this idea that you... It, and a lot of it was family labor in these smaller places. But, of course, in the South, a lot of these are African-Americans who are not allowed to stay there. Uh, who are cleaning the rooms. Who are cleaning the rooms and changing the sheets and, and performing that labor. Interesting. I was doing a good deal of work on uh, the original west side of Salt Lake City, and the irony was is that there were hotels and places where African Americans could be on the west side, but not in Hotel Utah where they worked. Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting. Incredible. Uh, Gideon's Bible between the bed yeah. and the stand, hotel stationery, as you mentioned. What's the story about Gideon's Bible? I don't know the story of Gideon's Bible, but they're, they're always there. The, you're going to have to get me to find out. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I know that if you go to a Marriott, there's also a Book of Mormon. That's true. It, 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 as a Mormon-owned company. Uh, 
big heated swimming pools in the center of the hotel, um, uh, pool chairs and chaise lounges, uh, the towels and so on, a lot of uh, ways mm-hmm. of attracting people. They, they became really competitive, didn't they? Hope? Very competitive. Um, uh, and then, of course, you wanted to park your car right outside your door. Well, that was the whole appeal of a motel. You didn't have to shave. Yeah. You could drive all day, drag the kids in, go right there. Prior to that time, there were hotel lobbies. You got out of the car, you'd have to pay a bellboy to bring your bags in. And for families on a budget, that was too expensive, and you really didn't want to be seen. You kind of had your own little private unit. So you had your private unit. Although in time, many, many hotels added, motorists added coffee shops. I mean, today you have the the free breakfast, which is a far cry from diner food. (laughs) Well, you know, when you think of the whole history of of motels, uh, you know, you have the places where you'd go and you'd get a room and you ate with the owners and you ate every meal with them. Uh, then you get the European style where you uh, actually get a room that's somewhat separate and you can go eat in a cafe or go elsewhere. You don't have to eat with the owner. I mean, it's just fascinating how vacations have evolved over the last 150 years. Vacations are a barometer of our society. And I think that they will change also from the pandemic. I think we're going to be seeing seeing some changes in travel. Uh, and it's, it'd be interesting to, to, to watch for that. I, and tourism is such an important part of our Utah economy. Uh, the, the ski economy, the winter sports economy is so, so important to us as a state uh, that it, it's smart for us to keep an eye on tourism and the history of tourism and what it means. Well, and all the different uh, amenities that people are interested in. Some want it big corporate big style others like that low-key kind of mom and pop place well i'd say be nice to the tourists because they're bringing in a lot of tax dollars <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, i know from our uh, studies that uh, oh maybe 20 percent of them are interested in history and culture they want to have an authentic experience here in utah temple square is still you know i, I mean it's been for years the railroads promoted it for years the number one tourist spot yeah. it was it was temple square number two was the bingham copper pit <laughs> Interesting. Well, tourism is a big part of Utah's economy and um, wonderful architecture, w- wonderful material culture that's out there that demonstrates all the different ways it's evolved over the years. Uh, Susan, tell me tell me the m- arguments. What are the main things you're arguing in your book, Are We There Yet? Well, what I, I, I began the book uh, is with an interest in trying to get a handle on the American family and the history of the family. And there are those in some quarters that would tell you every day that the family is declining, that it's going to hell in a handbasket, that it's falling apart. And I, I wanted to look at the American family and its history. And my view is it's not falling apart. It's strong. Mm-hmm. Families go on vacation Devolving. to build ties. All kinds of families can go on vacation. There are vacation spots uh, for for gay families, for gay people. There are vacation spots uh, for anybody, any kind of a family, for single parents. You don't have to be the classic nuclear family to want to go on vacation. Mm -hmm. And there are places for everyone. Everyone, all kinds of families uh, exist, and all kinds of families want to go and have this time of togetherness, and memories and family vacations create memories for people mm-hmm. that they can look back on. Uh, I don't know if people still take home movies, but we had home movies. There's wonderful home movies. Mm. And so to me, vacationing is a way to bring the family together 
And I think that's a constant. I think the way we vacation has changed. People go on cruises, people fly, people spend a lot of money. But it's still possible to have a simple family vacation and find some place you haven't seen before. And we're not vacationing like we were after World War II, but we are still vacationing. And it's mm -hmm. available there to strengthen family ties. I, I think uh, Utah is in a perfect position in the center of the West with our big, with our parks, with our culture, with uh, so many of this kind of coming back home uh, uh, pilgrimages. Uh, but there's also just about anything you want here in Utah in these wonderful towns across uh, rural Utah as well as uh, across the Wasatch Front. Um, I, I, I would like to urge all of you, do after this post-pandemic world, get acquainted with what's in your backyard. There's some amazing things to enjoy culturally, recreationally, and of course for us history geeks, and you must be if you're listening, you want to experience the material culture that is being spoken by our speakers today. Lisa, tell me about your book and what you're wanting to, what do you envision in this neon book? So the, the neon signs book will be mostly photographs of neon signs that still exist in Utah that would encourage your listeners to go seek them out and uh, support the local businesses that are displaying them. I think the neon signs are an art piece in themselves, and they're a really important part of our streetscape and our built environment. So I want to document them and just get people interested in them. I also think there's a great story behind every sign. Mm -hmm. And if you follow my Instagram account, I usually post, you know, this sign was like I posted the other day, this uh, guy started an automotive shop in the 1940s. And so I love the fact that you can see the sign as an art piece, but you can also see the business and the entrepreneur behind the sign. Interesting. Well, we look forward to when it comes out. Thanks. I just want to say as a, as a sequel to what I said that I'm taking my grandchildren to Yellowstone. <laughs> and and I'm going to tell them to look at the Tetons. <laughs> yeah, we go put through. your head up. Look, look up from your iPhone. <laughs> look up from your game, whatever game you're playing, and look at those mountains. <laughs> you, you know, it, it really is a civic lesson. It's a, it's a wonderful family bonding experience. There's nothing quite like getting out and vacationing. And it's the time to do so, so we hope you'll all get out to see, particularly Utah. Please remember to rate and review Speaker Peace on Apple, Google, Podcasts, or wherever you find our podcast. This podcast is recorded and engineered at Studio Underground here in Salt Lake City. I thank my sound engineer and post-production editor, Connor Sorensen from Studio Underground. I also express my special thanks to Spencer Stokes. He is president of Stokes Strategies, who owns Studio Underground. The past is never really in the past. It's all around us. It informs us. It speaks to our shared and to our separate identities. Speak Your Peace is a podcast where writers, historians, archaeologists, curators, all who, are, who have contributed to Utah's history can share their insights and discoveries. If there's one place, one podcast to get your Utah history fix, I hope this is the place. Thank you, Susan Rue. Thank you, Lisa Michelle Church, for joining me today. Thank you, Brad. It was so much fun. I really enjoyed this. I hope you'll once more tune in to the next episode of Speak Your Peace. Mm -hmm.